Hello and welcome to the third episode of the Gravescast. Uh, it's good to be back and tonight we have on uh, a good friend of mine, Jacob Prattley. He is a game developer, a Green Day fanatic, and honestly one of the most creative minds I know. Uh, one of the biggest memories I have is back in high school, back in grade 9, uh, for his birthday, instead of just doing something simple like going bowling or... I don't know, going to Canada's Wonderland. He sat there and in uh, like a three acre field, he made a Nerf arena just for everyone to play in. So he's quite a creative fellow. Uh, how are you doing today, Jacob? Well, I'm doing so much better now that I've gotten all that praise from you. Jeez. <laughs> Weren't expecting that? <laughs> no, I, I wasn't expecting you to bring up the Nerf field either. I can't say I've mentioned it in a long time, so I feel like you need a little bit of recognition for that. Yeah, well, it was quite the feat. We we got a lot of free tarps from our local lumber store to pull that off. <laughs> Anything else that really went into that? or Honestly, uh, a lot of work, a lot of planning, uh, and too much graph paper than I'd care to admit. Um, I drew up a lot of plans that ended up not working because I don't know scales. <laughs> it's quite a shame but overall went pretty well especially yeah. with the lights uh he he had lights sectioned off so it ended up being something you could quickly take out and at nighttime obviously you want them around so it really livened up the games a little bit but anyways uh today we we're kind of going to start off uh jacob is a huge pokemon fan kind of like myself and recently they came out with a new Pokemon Presents. So you watched it before I did, and I believe you watched it live, right? Yeah, I, I got up early in the morning just to see it. I usually get up at like 2 p.m., woke up at 7 just to catch this thing, which was way too early. <laughs> That's the dedication at work. So would you kind of like to recap it for the audience there then? Well, um, I think they, they try to subvert our expectations because they, they start off, you know, with this montage that they always do, recapping the history of Pokemon. Um, and then we get, uh, you know, the, the big head honcho himself saying about, oh, welcome to our Pokemon Presents. And then they go into um, some details on uh, Pokemon Snap, which hasn't seen a sequel since it was first released. And now we're finally getting one. And it was it was good to see a bit more of that. Um, but then we jumped right into new stuff. I expected uh, so much more from all the other corners of the Pokemon world, but uh, they neglected everything there and went right into the big new reveals, Diamond and Pearl remakes, and then this brand new take on what Pokemon is, Legends Arceus, which looks like Breath of the Wild Pokemon. Yeah, I'd say so. So what were some, like, I think we should go over kind of our likes and dislikes first, and then maybe we can make a few predictions. So what did you like overall? I I like that they got to the point. Um, and I like that this Direct really seemed focused on um, giving the fans what they want, uh, even if it's not what the fans want, because uh, I've seen a lot of people complaining about the uh, art style of the Diamond and Pearl one, but I think we'll get into that a bit later. <laughs> um, but it it really shows a shift in the design philosophy. I was mildly against the Pokemon company as a whole, as of recent, because I've been kind of disappointed with what they put out, but uh, they really have shifted towards uh, uh, listening to the to the audience of their products. 
this so mind you i don't know if i i'm still pretty skeptical of you know the new art design but overall i thought the pokemon direct was very well done i actually really loved when it came to you know them showing the brand and it really it's kind of scary actually it's they've really cornered the market starting with just a video game and going into ar fitness food etc they have everything now I will yeah. say it did get a little bit cringy when it was they're using all the hashtags. Like, what the heck is hashtag tap and hashtag jump? Those are. <laughs> it's like you the Pokemon company was like, okay, what do people like? What what are teenagers really loving right now? Oh fuck hashtags. Let's use them everywhere now. And <laughs> to me, that just that didn't really work out. But it's, overall. It's you know, yeah. hashtags have joined into the mainstream and now everyone has to use them to stay relevant. I suppose so, but I just felt like their approach wasn't as good as it could have been. Uh, but overall, I was actually, I watched this at a later time. I didn't end up watching it live, but I was actually pretty satisfied with it. Weirdly enough, uh, I started with Diamond and Pearl, uh, and you know what? It's still my favorite Pokemon game. I can't say I've gone back to it since I, I was a kid, but has a special place in my heart uh, i'm not really looking forward to the remakes i thought the graphics were a little bleh i i personally feel that way i got chills when watching it because honestly like just remind me of my childhood right you see the ds there you see the intro screen and you just see like everything you loved and all those emotions kind of come f flowing back in right mm -hmm, but yeah. overall i i think they said that they would end up kind of making it like a faithful uh remake right yeah and that's kind of one of my issues with it and while it is a faithful remake um a faithful remake that is almost a 3d translation of the original game what's the difference between playing that and going to my ds cartridge that i have literally sitting right there plugging it into my ds and playing pokemon pearl again the difference is i didn't spend 60 dollars well it's probably gonna be what like 80 dollars when it comes out <laughs> Well, 80 Canadian, 60 US. Okay, same, same difference then. Of course. But uh, yeah, no, I I don't see much of a difference. I think, personally, I feel as if remakes need to kind of mix it up a bit for it to be good. I feel like this almost is Nintendo's attempt to remind people of the Sinnoh region, almost as if this is kind of a tack-on, kind of like, for like something like Metal Gear Solid, you had two parts of the game. Ground Zeroes and Phantom Pain. They released Ground Zeroes. It was probably like a two-hour game. Nothing that you've ever seen from the Metal Gear Solid series. And it almost acted as kind of like a... Not a prequel, but a way to kind of lead up to the main event. So I feel like we're looking at Pokemon, Ar Pokemon Legends Arceus as the headliner. And Pokemon Brilliant Diamond and uh, Shining Pearl are just kind of... The opening act, I, I suppose, right? Right. They would be um, pretty stupid to not use Diamond and Pearl remakes to, to lead into something bigger with, with Arceus. I've even seen, you know, theories that maybe the end of those games is going to change and Team Galactic is going to win. And the result of that victory is the world we see in Legends Arce Arceus. Uh, but, but having that kind of connective tissue between the two games not only makes a more cohesive world for your players, but it, it like makes people buy it, you know? If you're on the fence about buying Arceus, but there's a cliffhanger in Diamond and Pearl, and you want to get that resolved, you're going to buy Arceus. You know, 
It's the same reason we all keep coming back to Marvel movies, because they all lead into each other. So you're almost suggesting that Pokemon Legends Arceus might not actually be a prequel, but a sequel to the Sinnoh region? Well, well, have you not seen in the trailer the, the galactic logo almost on their arm? I did not see that, actually. Yeah, if you if you look closely, hidden everywhere in the trailer, there's, <laughs> there's the Team Galactic logo, but it's not quite that. It's got the same silhouette, but it's a, uh, it's a kanji that I believe means Jin, uh, and when combined with another kanji, it translates to galactic. So it's it's almost like a precursor to the galactic logo. But but uh, think of this like a like a devastated future instead of an old past. Okay. Um, and and you know that intro where they say this takes place in the Sinnoh of old could be a red herring, because uh, even our modern day is eventually going to be the old times. Do you really think they're capable of something like that, though? I feel like Nintendo is not a company to throw screwballs like that. Yeah. Um, I think you're giving I, them way too much credit. I don't think the screwball thing is the issue, because, uh, you know, things like Breath of the Wild, that is technically a sequel to every Legend of Zelda game, even though it takes place in what appears to be an ancient time. It's it's 100 years, 10 hundred years however long in the future past the end of everything to the point that everything has recombined into one timeline. Um, I think the issue there is Pokemon doesn't want to go that deep, I think. Uh, and the idea that the bad guys have won and everything you've ever known and loved is gone is way too dark for Pokemon, outside of the Pokedex, of course. I wouldn't say so. I mean, you look at Black and White and Black and White 2, and they also had that continuation, and I'm pretty sure the bad guys won that, didn't they? I don't recall them winning. There was the whole gym leader standoff, and you, the good guys always come through. Okay, but then take something like Pokemon Red, where Gary's uh, Raticate died, right? So, and the Pokemon Tower, that's pretty depressing. So, I that's mean, true. they have introduced stuff like that before. And, I mean, we're, we're getting to a point where Pokemon... I wouldn't say they're completely growing with their audience, but it seems like they're trying to appeal to those who grew up with it and those who are just being introduced to it now. Right? That is that is a good point. It, it does seem to be a lot less uh, hand-holdy, a lot less aimed at children, uh, Legends Arceus at least, um, than past games have been. Uh, and I think it's in a press release somewhere that they're they're making this into its own like series if it goes popular so that we have mainline Pokemon games and then alongside of it, Legends games, where the Legends games are aimed at an older audience, people who know what they're doing with a video game, and classic Pokemon is going to be a lot more handholdy. But I still think being, you know, foremost a children's media, um, regardless of who actually consumes it, they're not going to put that dark foot forward. And they're going to leave it to the background. If that is the case with the plot, that the world's over, um, it's definitely going to be hidden very deep. I wouldn't say very deep, but I feel like it would take the critical thinking skills and putting those puzzle pieces together for them to fully understand it. That way, I mean, it's the same thing with adult jokes in movies, like kids' movies. Like, on the forefront, it just seems like a kids' movie and, you know, enjoyed by them, of course, because they're the tar target demographic. But then when, you know, the parents go and see it with the kids, they start to see, you know, the jokes included for them. So I feel like it could almost be the same way, right? Like, for so, go back to the Gary's Raticate thing. Uh, I feel like it was something that you almost had to assume and kind of dig deeper into. Elsewise, it's just the type of thing where it's, oh, you know, Gary doesn't have his Raticate anymore. And even the Pokemon Tower in general, 
Uh, of course, you can read the text and everything. I'll say, you know, this is where the dead Pokemon lie. But as a kid, I feel like you'd more just think of it as more of like a haunted house more than anything. Whereas when you get a bit older, you start to actually understand the meaning behind the place and everything. That's that's a very good point. I actually forgot that that Gary's Raticate is a whole side plot. It's not in your face. Yeah. Um, you know, you see him come out of the tower, right? And then he just doesn't have it the next time you battle. Yeah, so it's um, something that needs to be perceived, right? It's it's something that can be easily missed unless you dig deeper into it. There are there's a lot of really good environmental storytelling like that in Pokemon, like the the whole Cresselia quest. I think it was in black and white with the lunar wing and the 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 mansion with all the the ghost girl. Well, they have a lot of those in Pokemon, but you know what I mean. Unless you don't know what I mean. <laughs> no, I I think I know what you mean. So yeah, there's a lot of, of good points in, in the series where they've used environmental storytelling to get across something darker that shouldn't be there, you know, explicitly for someone who's, I don't know, more moldable to see. So you're right. This is a roundabout way of saying I agree. I think um, something might be there just under the surface. Okay. Now, just kind of going back a little bit into Pokemon Legends Arceus a little more. I personally like the graphics better. I think it better represents what it should be versus what we've seen in Pokemon Diamond and Pearl, uh, like the Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl, at least so far. Uh, I don't know about the frame rate. I feel like it might be a technical technological jump for them, just seeing like how it acted before. I'm not talking about the chingling that you see, but I'm just talking about the battles, right? You and know, I, I know you have a stance on this, so feel free to share it. Uh, well, that chingling, no. Um, the uh, <laughs> I, I I don't I don't have the real um, uh, I don't know how to say this. I don't I don't have the the real right to make any comments on um, the people working at the Pokemon Company or what work they do. But from what I've heard, uh, it, they don't do the best optimization for their games. Um, there's a lot of points I've seen uh, uh, like dumps of the text files even where every single attack has, you know, opponents, and then the Pokemon name, whatever that is, that's filled in with a variable, used Thunderbolt. And that's written out three times for each attack in the entire game's files when it could have just been, you know, scrubbed out with a little variable. So the frame rate issues, I think, aren't a limit of the hardware, but rather a limit of the uh, ability to, to fix issues. <laughs> Because cause there's so many ways to do things in game development, um, but there's never really a right way. There's just a fast way. Uh, but even if you don't take the fast way, it's still going to work. So, so, yeah. I was just wondering, like, in, in regards to this, do you feel like this will be the successful version of whatever this type of game series is going to be? Because me personally, I think that this is almost going to be like a prototype type thing and lead the way for future games in the same style. I don't think this will be the blockbuster one that everyone gets super hyped. Like everyone's going to get super hyped about it, but I don't think it's going to be the one that everyone remembers as being the best one in the proposed series. I feel like the next one will probably be a lot more advanced. I think they'll kind of uh, round out the edges per se. And we'll get to a point where it's not, it's refined, right? Yeah. Well, that's that's kind of how Pokemon has been going for so many years. 
you know, the jump to 3D with X and Y, that was more or less a prototype of how that's going to work. And then the jump to um, not more realistic, but better stylized graphics with Sun and Moon was, again, the same thing. And then we saw with the wild area in Sword and Shield, that was pretty much a prototype of um, Legends Arceus. And, you know, knowing how game development goes, this game's been in development for a while now, likely. Um, so they were probably going alongside the wild area, just hoping that this worked out and this was to uh, gauge people's opinions, um, to see what needs to be changed. And it's going to be the same thing. This is going to be super janky. Uh, <laughs> there's going to be parts that people don't like. There's going to be parts that people like, and they're going to make another one that's going to be better. I um, am. I'm going to make my prediction. I think yeah. this could be the only one in this proposed series. Because I think yep. what we might be seeing is kind of the Legend of Zelda to the Adventures of Link effect, which for those who aren't familiar, the original Legend of Zelda was a top-down style type game. And it was very successful, obviously, and it spanned the series. But no one really talks about the second game in the series, which is called Adventures of Link, and also on the original Nintendo, as the original Zelda was. And in that game, they changed up the style. So instead of it being a top-down adventure-style game, it retained the adventure uh, genre, but they began going more side-scroller. Whereas you would kind of, in the overworld, it would still remain that top-down, but once you got into battles or visited towns or something, then it would go into a side-scroller fashion. So everyone hated it, no one liked it whatsoever, everyone complained, and they never really did that again, and they just went back to the original formula. Now, I feel like something like this is deviating from the original formula in a pretty modest amount. So I feel like reception might not be amazing for it, especially if this is going to act like a supposed prototype for the proposed series. So I almost feel like this might be something that kind of blows up. People forget about it, people hate it, and then they don't really try something like this again. That... That's a great comparison. Um, personally, I actually really like the, the 2D Zelda style. Uh, I played it on the Nintendo Switch online, but that's beside <laughs> the point. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I agree that this is something uh, different and new, but judging by the reactions I've seen online, and of course I filtered myself to a lot of positive reactions because I don't like seeing people who you know, go against my opinion, but who does? Um, I think it's being received very positively. Uh, the fact that it's Pokemon means it's going to sell well, regardless of if it's good or bad. Um, and I don't remember my point, but <laughs> oh, right, this is this is what I wanted. This isn't just some kind of weird spinoff. This is exactly what I wanted from Pokemon ever since I started feeling unfulfilled by the games. Really? Um, yeah. This is this is it hit every mark. Uh, when I watched it live, I actually fell to the floor with my jaw open, and that's not exaggeration. It was exaggeration in the moment. I was doing it for physical comedy purposes. But um, Did you have an audience? I, yeah, my sister. <laughs> 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 I, love, I love everything about Arceus, um, except for what we don't see, because you know, that's the big unknown. Who knows what the rest of the game is going to be like? I... But, you know what? I don't feel the same way. I, I feel like for a lot of people, and you know what? I could be completely wrong. Maybe most Pokemon fans feel the same way as you, 
but I feel like everyone almost wanted that experience in their own lives, which is why we saw Pokemon Go become so popular. And I mean, obviously that fell off, but that kind of was a bridge to people's dreams because they would sit there and, you know, you'd be running around shouting Go Pikachu as a kid, playing make-believe. And I feel like everyone wanted that real-world experience, which Pokemon Go offered. But with Pokemon Legends Arceus, I mean, it's certainly a step up from kind of your turn-based, you know, walk-around, top-down style game. But I don't really know if it's what everyone wants. I mean, it's the Pokemon name, so everyone's going to fucking eat it up. Everyone's going to pay that $60, but I don't know if that's kind of the be-all, end-all of what everyone wants. Well, I guess we are going to have to wait till the game comes out to really, really know. But I think um, it's a lot more uh, uh, leaned in towards, that's not the right word, in line with what the anime shows and what what the media portrays not the media but pokemon's media portrays <laughs> the pokemon media. as um it feels like watching the pokemon world instead of having to extrapolate some of that information into you know what it is um your pokemon run up and punch each other in the face what more could you ask for uh probably a pokemon boxing ring i feel like that'd be a little more entertaining a little bit of ufc going on <laughs> machamp got- versus uh charizard <laughs> Pretty much like, what you saw in Detective Pikachu. I was going to say, like the underground ring of Detective Pikachu? I mean, you'd probably want to legalize it a little bit, make it so it's not, you know, underground and, you know, sketchy and, you know, okay. attacking okay, the a, actual audience. That's 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 the thing, though. In Specifically to Detective Pikachu, battles are illegal in Rhyme City, where it is set. Everywhere else, it's fine. Okay, but are they allowed to attack the audience members? Like, imagine going to a fucking WWE fight, and they throw everyone out of the ring, you know, the the fight's over, and the motherfuckers come from the ring and start fucking hitting the audience members. Like, slam you over the head with a chair. You want that? Is that the authentic experience you want from your shows? Yeah, actually. That would make wrestling a lot cooler. Boxing, whatever you said it was. Well, we kind of combined uh, wrestling, boxing, UFC, or wrestling, boxing, and UFC. Uh, UFC, cool. Boxing, eh. WWE, eh. But that's kind of besides the point. I feel like we should probably get to the headliner of the Pokemon Direct, which I don't know if anyone was expecting this, but we got a new Pokemon Snap. Yeah. <laughs> And I'm not going to lie, I, I saw it, like, I believe you told me about it, or I read about it somewhere that Pokemon Snap was, you know, coming out with a new game, and I thought it'd be yeah. the type of thing in the Direct where it's like, you know, you see it for two minutes, and you're like, oh, you know what, okay, it'll be it'll be alright, but not something I'm interested in. And weirdly enough for me, that seemed to actually be the most exciting part of the Direct. Really? How come? I just honestly felt like it's... It's not marketed towards that competitive audience, and I tend to be more of a competitive player when it comes to something like this, but it just looked like a really relaxing, carefree game. Almost like the lazy river of the Pokemon world. Like, <laughs> you're just sitting there taking photos of Pokemon, just, it's, you know, seeing, like, the beautiful scenery, mapping out behaviors. I mean, I'm sure there'll be some type of competitive basis for it, but overall, it just seems like, you know, you get off your 9 to 5, your feet are aching, you're sick of your boss, and you go home and you just sink into the couch taking pictures of Pokemon. And that's kind of what I see for it. 
I, I love that lazy river comparison because <laughs> it's a rail shooter. You're, you're being dragged along the map the whole time. It's just like being in a lazy river. Uh, <laughs> well, I knew you're not actually shooting the Pokemon. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, imagine imagine in like an arcade, you have Big Buck Hunter, but instead it's like uh, Big Rhyhorn uh, Hunter or something. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Pokemon Poacher 3. Tales somehow. Uh, oh, God. The possibilities, I, man. Pokemon... <laughs> Sorry? Pokemon Snap, uh, I think it looks uh, graphically very impressive. Uh, because apparently that's the only thing that is a measure of a Pokemon game nowadays, is if it looks good. Um, but you're right, it does look really relaxing. Uh, it also looks like there's an opportunity to get jump scared, but I don't think they do that at least too often. Maybe like a ghastly pops up. But... Um, I'm, it's it's you know here's my rating it's gonna be 7.5 out of 10 and i'm going to pick it up on launch day as really? i do with every piece of pokemon media do you have a collection of all the pokemon plushies then uh yes okay no i don't i'm sorry <laughs> so you're a fake I fan i call a plush media uh it's a, it's a form of media but i would say it's a I, I will say the one the one gripe I do have with the Pokemon Snap game is the region name, fucking uh, Lentil <laughs> Region. It's like they're trying to appeal to the vegans of the Pokemon world. Yeah, what is up with that? It's got to be some kind of weird translation. I don't believe that someone genuinely looked at Lentil and thought <laughs> that's a good region name. So you can see the Pokemon board me. It's like everyone's going around. It's like, what are we going to call this new region? What are we going to call this new region? You look around. You see a desk. No. You see the chalkboard. No. You see Bob, the intern in the corner, eating like a lentil salad. It's like, shit, we'll call it the <laughs> lentil region. So maybe that's how it came to be. Uh, to choose between green bean and lentil. Yeah. Another, I guess another thing that I will complain about is the Lumina orbs. It, to me, it literally feels like, you know what they are, right? In regards, for those who don't, uh, the Lumina orbs basically make the Pokemon glow. So one of the things they advertised in the trailer was the Pokemon's uh, fire breath is not orange or red or whatever. It turns blue. So for me, I think of like going for a CT scan and they're like, all right, drink this blue dye so we can see what's inside <laughs> your chest. So it's almost like you're fucking poisoning the Pokemon. <laughs> Like, we're going to go from Pokemon Snap, this beautiful, almost kind of vacation-esque game, and then we're probably going to end up with Legends Arceus, with, like, fucking pollution everywhere, and acid rain and everything. Oh, so you think Legends Arceus? Arceus, sorry for that, is a, is a direct sequel to Pokemon Snap? I mean, it seems that way. And then uh -huh. after that, you know, we get Pokemon Diamond and Pearl, and then maybe the sequel of Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl. There's all the possibilities, right? There is no definitive Pokemon timeline, I don't think. Well, if you want to touch on this topic, there is no timeline because the games exist in pocket dimensions. Uh, and every single game cartridge is its own universe, and that's canon. Okay. <laughs> you might have caught me off guard just a little bit here. They, they, they introduced that, I think, in Omega Ruby Alpha Sapphire. Um... They sound like a space astronaut 
into a different dimension and they discover that it's the exact same but slightly different. There's a Kyogre instead of a Groudon or something. I yeah. don't know. Um, the Lumina Orbs, though, it really just feels like that's the gimmick. Yeah. <laughs> the Pokemon company has gone to this groove where they're like, you know what we need? A gimmick for every game so people remember them. And I think that actually is the reasoning. Because you remember that X and Y was the one with Mega Evolution. Sun and Moon was the one with Z moves. You and know? then Dynamax. <laughs> Fuck, you know, giving okay. them good designs. You know, screw these nice, powerful moves. It's, what can we do? Ah, let's just make the Pokemon bigger. And that's okay, okay. the gimmick. <laughs> throw throw the bad implementation out, right? Throw, throw the overpowered Dynamax out of there. I love how it was done. Like, the technical execution, chef's kiss. The way that the crowd, like, has a different cheering when it happens. Oh, and the, 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 the clouds around their head, even though it doesn't align properly sometimes. I think it's really well done. Kudos to whoever made that. I think it's well done in execution. I just think the theory was bad, which is why <laughs> I don't personally approve of Dynamaxing. But, you know what? Teach their own. Yeah. Now... In our notes here, we do have something about a remix topic. So obviously, it's it seems like we almost both have a little bit of sour feeling towards you know Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl just being a remake. Uh, how do you feel about the Pokemon remakes in general? Because for the most part, excluding Yellow, excluding uh, Emerald, excluding was it Let's Go Pichu, Let's Go Eevee. There have been yeah. three definitive remakes in Fire Red and Leaf Green on the Game Boy Advance, Heart Gold and Soul Silver on the DS, and on the 3DS we had uh, Omega Ruby and Alpha Sapphire. So, did you feel like those were good entries in the series? Do you think they, the remakes were almost justified in a way? So, I think there's like a few ways to to think about the justification there. Um, I remember we talked about this pre-podcast a little bit that. Uh, uh, the first two were Fire Red Leaf Green and uh, Heart Gold Soul Silver. Those are uh, justified in the fact that Gen 1 and 2 aren't very accessible to people who want to play the games again um, and to people who want to get their Pokemon into the newest games. There's not really a good means of, of uh, uh, transference there. Um, and I think that is great justification. But they also went above and beyond, specifically Heart Gold and Soul Silver, in my opinion. Um, I think that uh, the the addition that they brought to it, it wasn't just playing the game again. It was playing a new experience um, with with stuff added in, stuff brought back, new Pokemon allowed, uh, and it made it into not a better game, but you know a different game. Um, and I think that really culminated with Omega Ruby Alpha Sapphire, where playing that is practically very different from playing Ruby and Sapphire. Um, there's so much new content. There's a lot of stuff that changed. There's, there's mega evolution, period. It's there. Um, the post-game is completely different, even if it's not as good, uh, with the the battle Maison instead of the whole battle frontier. Um, not the Delta episode. That was awesome. <laughs> I think <laughs> those are all really justified. I think they're great, um, and I think they add to the brand. And uh, you'll notice I've left out the new ones, because <laughs> I'm not too sure about those. Do you agree? 
I would have to say no, actually. Uh, I agree with you in regards to Fire Red and Leaf Green and Heart Gold and Soul Silver because they provide a sense of functionality just in regards to having to trade your Pokemon and making it more accessible and honestly just improving upon the old formula because, I mean, you had so many glitches in Red and Blue. You had a few glitches in uh, Gold, Silver, Crystal. So I feel like those are justified. But when it came to Omega Ruby Alpha Sapphire, I didn't feel like the base game was as improved as the previous two. I mean, in Heart Gold and Soul Silver, you had, um, first of all, you, you got like Viridian Forest and everything back because back in the original Gold and Silver, there was actually uh, cartridge limitations. So there's a lot of stuff they couldn't add. So in a way, they almost uh, filled up the region again, uh, at least the Kanto region. They sat there and they allowed you to like, walk around with your Pokemon, which is kind of a gimmick as you've spoken on behalf of before, but still a welcome addition. And then you also had kind of the brilliant post-game, right? So I just feel like that was beneficial. And then in regards to Fire Red and Leaf Green, you had the Sevi Islands, which is something we hadn't seen before. So I felt like those were something that was almost like a reimagining. Most of it stayed faithful to the original, but it also expanded upon it. Whereas I felt with Omega Ruby and Alpha Sapphire, it was pretty forgettable. I didn't really feel like they had a lot of add-ons, except for the Delta episode, and then I guess Mega Pokemon. Besides that, it didn't feel like there were a lot of changes to the game. And with the, first of all, I was not a fan of the Delta episode, which, you know, teach their own, right? But in regards to the Mega Pokemon, they almost stole that mechanic from X and Y. So they remade the game, they changed the graphics, and then they piggybacked on a mechanic from the previous entry. So to me, it just felt pretty uninspiring and unoriginal. Plus, they didn't have that badass trump trumpet music you saw in Ruby and Sapphire. So for me, <laughs> I think that's better. I, I would prefer the original versus the remake in that case. If if I had to pick one, I probably would still play Ruby or Sapphire or well not Sapphire. I'd play Ruby or Emerald. Sapphire is for nerds. Um, <laughs> uh, Hot takes right here. <laughs> but um, um, so so you're right. It does actually feel a lot like X and Y in the sense that I can't really picture a lot of it. I don't I don't know if that's just me, but X and Y. And I guess Omega Ruby Alpha Sapphire were weirdly forgettable in visual style. I don't remember what any of the towns except the one that you get the roller skates in looked like in in X and Y. You know, Lumio City off the side. Oh, yes. It was a big circle. Of course you're going to remember that. Um, but I can really only picture the treetops and, like, your starting town. Everything else is gone from my memory with that. I, I did spend a lot of time soaring, which was... Ooh, chef's kiss again i think that was the best feature in the entire game what just taking out hm moves back of a pokemon oh i thought you were gonna go more the hm brood on that one. Oh no no i miss hms they were a terrible idea to get rid of them i loved loved them because uh without hms exploring in pokemon feels so unearned yep. you know um especially because they didn't really put in uh, a replacement for any of them in X and or, sorry, Sword and Shield. The only one we got back was like Fly. You can't break rocks. There's no rocks to break. You can't push rocks. There's no rocks to push. That's true. So I guess you know you kind of lose out on that mechanic then instead of having it replaced. Um, 
Yeah, no. We didn't have to lose out, though. You know, in Sun and Moon, they had the Machamp that pushes rocks for you and the Sharpedo that can break rocks in the water. Yeah, but I feel like everyone misses out on the experience of having, like, a Zigzagoon that they just teach, like, 4HM moves or a Bidoof that they literally just pull out of the PC to surf or use Strength or something. So the kids, the, the kids nowadays will never know. I always felt that was part of the game balance, was trying to decide if you should stack your team against the gym leader or keep something in your party to help you traverse the terrain, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, I guess now that I actually think about it, once that's left my mouth, I'm, I'm, I was a stupid child and there was a PC center right beside every gym, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, oh, as no. they always say, hindsight is twenty twenty. so... I guess uh, let's bottom line this remakes. Yes or no? Are you a fan, like in general, or no? Uh, I I'm not a fan of the idea of just remaking a game. I'm a fan of of reimagining it, making it more accessible, or bringing something new to the table with it, using it as a medium to convey a new story or a new experience. I would have to agree with you on that. I think you summed it up perfectly, to be quite honest with you. Now, the next thing that we kind of wanted to touch on uh, was actually online relationships, weirdly enough. So nowadays, it's a whole lot different because of the COVID, but ever since kind of the you know development of stuff like Tinder, Bumble, and Hinge, we're starting to see a lot more of the dating world go online. Now, it's a weird double-edged sword just in regards to it makes dating more accessible and it helps you, you know, meet people you wouldn't have met previously just because, you know, you, you don't see everyone. You're limited to who you actually see or the groups you're a part of versus just random people, right? But on the other side, it just, the connect, for some people, the connection is not as fulfilling, so, do you kind of have a stance on that? Uh, just online dating in general, just as a top line. Uh, top line, it's it's good, but in the same way that like a bunch of people who like toasters can find each other on the internet nowadays instead of learning that liking toasters is weird. I would agree with you on that one. I think. Personally, when it comes to dating apps, it's good to have the accessibility, but I, I don't know if you have any experience with dating apps, but myself, I just, I almost find it boring in a way. Like the matching process is exciting. You know, you're swiping through. It's like, you know, yeah, I like her, like her, don't like her, whatever. And then when you match, it's like, okay, here's a potential partner. But I feel like once you get into that conversation, everything kind of fizzles out. I, I feel like it's very, like, conversation the conversation itself isn't hard you can just sit there and talk about topics until you find stuff that you guys have in common but i almost feel like creating a basis over online just it doesn't have the same connection as seeing someone in person you don't have those mannerisms you don't have the authenticity of it you don't know how they like conduct in the world around them right so it might seem like the perfect person on the surface and then, you know, you go out to dinner or something on this date after finding out, you know, we both love horror movies. We both love animals. Heck, we both want to be doctors. And then you find out, yeah, she's mean to the waiter and she picks her nose in public. So <laughs> I, I don't know what's worse, but I mean, 
those are both uh, pretty bad things. They are? Uh, it d- depends on your outlook, I suppose. But I've always found that, like, both ways. I just, I, I either get bored of the conversation and ghost, or it happens on the opposing side. I, I just feel like it's very hard to keep it up. I feel like, you know, these types of relationship building apps are good in regards to, like, friendships, where it's like meetup.com. Uh, for some reason, I was going to say Kijiji. I've definitely seen a few <laughs> advertisements where it's like, hey, looking for friends. I am a my 20-year-old pal. male who likes League of Legends. Come hit me up and respond to my advertisement. But overall, I just, it doesn't do it for me. I feel like I would need to meet that person, you know, in person and conduct that first. Because, I mean, you've got the photo, you've got the interest, but you don't know whether there's chemistry. And I feel like a lot, like, a lot of the relationships you see in person, you see that authenticity. You see, you. I mean, you could judge a person whether you're interested or not in them just based off of probably like 15 minutes of talking to them in person. But I feel like online it would take a lot longer. I, I have so so as you were speaking, the thought popped into my head that that apps like like Tinder and stuff really feel like a, a dating game show. You know, you're you're out on the stage floor. The lights are on you. There's pictures flying everywhere. Um, but then the show's over once you're done. And that talking afterwards is, you know, the rush isn't there anymore. Um, you're no longer on stage. This isn't about you. This is this is everything's over. You're just talking. Um, and I think that's why it it people get ghosted a lot. Obviously, part of it's saturation. You know, there's plenty of other people who fit your description, especially on the men's side. Um, well, you know, statistically there's more guys on dating apps. Uh, but I think part of it is just that, that in the moment you're like, that's it. They're the one. And then it just, you know, doesn't happen to really mean that that thought pops into your head, but it's not necessarily true. Kind of like an expectations versus reality thing, right? I guess. Yeah. I just, yeah, it's, personally, it's not for me. I know people do get success from it, but I I feel like maybe that comes down to a basic human psychology where, kind of like the game show thing you're saying, you know, in the game show, it's, you know, pick, you know, pick your bachelor or something like that, right? So at the end, you know, you see that match, but then it fizzles out right afterwards. I mean, how many people on, you know, these game shows, these reality shows like The Bachelor, actually end up staying together afterwards there's very few and i mean on tinder at least for me i think you know once you match it almost feels like you've accomplished that it's like cool we've made that match and then everything else just feels downhill from there unless of course you know you go on that date and then you make that connection right 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 that's that's the peak of the experience is getting those two pictures to pop up on screen together that's what happens right so it's a match and then you and then yeah okay (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's also part of it that's that's juice that's um something the developers put in there that didn't have to be there but you get that reaction that that instantaneous rush of energy because hey look you've been matched with this person that's insane you did it congratulations now it's on you buddy you know and then and then the pressure's on but the pressure's also off yeah it almost feels like you got to the end of the quest and then actually talking and you know, going on that date afterwards is like the post game, <laughs> weirdly enough. 
And I mean, you know, there's some people who also just go on there to get that ego boost, right? It's, yeah. I don't actually, you know, care to date that guy. I don't care to date that girl. I just want to see who will match with me and get that, like you said, the rush. It's, it almost feels like one of those, like, pay-to-win games or just, not not pay-to-win per se, but just those games that you, you get those little rushes of energy and, you know, they, they bait, like Candy Crush or something. You beat the level, yeah. you get the rush of energy. It's it's small, it's instantaneous. Whereas, you know, it's it's not like something like, I, I'm going to say Minecraft. I don't play Minecraft, not a fan of it, but <laughs> I, I know you're a huge fan. But something like Thanks that, you know, a lot of the joy comes from the long-term project of it. So I feel like, you know, the creators of Tinder, Bumble, whatever, they almost prey on that, I guess, uh, primitive human brain, that need for you know, quick dopamine and everything, right? Yeah. And that's a great point that there's developers behind this. Um, if there's ever a service that's free, you know, the old saying, you're the product. Um, they're selling your data. They're trying to get you to buy something. And that's just the case, right? Isn't there some kind of in-app purchase on, on Tinder that, you know, you can super like or see who liked you or something like that? Tinder premium. I don't know how yeah. it goes. You get Tinder um, gold, which is basically who likes you and then you can get tinder platinum which is you can send a message with your like oh that's cool <laughs> a lot of uh, money <laughs> ah but there's the thing it's all before the event happens and that's that's more evidence that, that, that the app is designed to get you in that headspace for the not the conversation itself but for for trying to match with people um it's almost like it's a game uh, they're playing the long game there because because the more you want to match with people the more likely you are to buy their product because it's not about getting people together. Who cares about that? It's about making money. <laughs> and that's the sad reality of being in a capitalist world. Well, we switched to politics. Great. Lo love is expensive, no? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I think one of the biggest things we both might have an issue with when it comes to these uh, online apps like Tinder and stuff is our love, <laughs> our love languages do not match up with it. So before this podcast, uh, me and Prattley had a very intimate time discussing our love languages, you know, just man to man. Uh, for those who are not familiar, uh, love is not a single thing. Love is, you know, comprised of a lot of different things. Uh, it's hard to define, but one way they've approached defining love languages or love is through love languages. So one is words of affirmation, where it's getting, you know, positive feedback from your partner, just, you know, like a positive experience. Uh, there's quality time, which is just kind of the idea of, you know, your partner wants to spend all their time with you and you want to spend all your time with them. You have acts of service, which is, you know, like bringing a cup of coffee, uh, I don't know, making the bed in the morning so they don't have to do that. Uh, you have gifts, which, you know, is pretty evident. And then the last one is physical touch. So like huddling, huddling, <laughs> huddling together with your partner. No, uh, cuddling, <laughs> hugging, kissing, etc. So when we talked before, we found out that both me and Prattley kind of more prefer that physical touch when it comes to love languages. Do you kind of want to speak on behalf of your rationale there? Well, I don't know if there is rationale there it's you know a nature nurture thing it's just who i am um and it's not even um 
limited to that. I'm just a, you know, as I, I told you before, but the audience doesn't know. Uh, I'm a very nonverbal communicator, and like my own conversation skills have been a very recent development. Because um, I just prefer to to talk with, uh, uh, I almost said other languages. I prefer to speak in Chinese. I thought you were going to say um, talk with your hands. <laughs> talk, talk with my hands, though. Like um, expressions, noises that aren't speaking hand gestures yeah that kind of thing you know um and it's hard to to convey that online yeah i would agree with you on that i i think for me it just comes down to i mean the quality time is something i enjoy as well um gifts access service that's really like a give or take don't really care uh the words of affirmation are obviously nice but i just feel like that physical touch the connectivity like the chemistry almost feeling like, you know, you're safe, uh, feeling that, you know, physical connection, like, you know, both, it's the type of thing where I feel like with words of affirmation, it's obviously a mental thing that you feel like, uh, for lack of a better term, the mental love, whereas with the physical touch, you get those bodily sensations, like, you know, the feel good dopamine from hugging another person, uh, serotonin, I believe, actually. And then you also get that mental love, right? So, I almost feel like for physical touch, it's kind of like a two-for-one deal almost. <laughs> and yeah, um, outside of that, I mean, it's interesting because you don't have a lot of uh, online dating experience when it comes to dating apps, but no. you've actually been in a, what, 99% online relationship for the past two and a half years? Well, we could do the math and, you know, 650 whatever days however many two and a half years is divided by two or two divided by that but i don't think that's worth it for the podcast and no, probably yeah not. i have um and it at the very beginning of course it was hard um and i've had to learn to adapt to to not you know cut out that that whole what one fifth pretty much of those love languages out of out of what i can get and it's hard because I, I just did the the quiz, the five love languages dot com <laughs> and quality time, the physical touch are neck and neck at almost thirty percent each. So being in an online online relationship means that I'm really only getting sixty percent of what my mind is expecting, if you do that math. Yeah. Now um how did yeah. you guys end up meeting? Because, you know, when it comes to like Tinder and Bumble, that's easy, but you didn't use any of those apps, right? No. And this sort of connects back to the point that I don't remember if I said or not, that um, I don't think I said this, that I think uh, dating apps are like like being set up by a friend. It's you put on the spot, you're expected to be there for that reason. Um, but then you go into the real world. And as far as I'm aware that the media portrays, people don't really meet each other like that that often. It's more organic. You know, you find someone that you, you vibe with well. Um, I think that kind of interaction doesn't happen much on the internet. Um, but yeah, that's that's that same idea, finding someone that you vibe well with, uh, sort of is what happened to me. I was on a, a website that I frequent where you <laughs> talk to strangers because it's fun. I like this, to mess with this people. This sounds very sketchy name. when you won't name the website. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I go by fake names. I just kind of uh, troll people online. It's fun, you know. Um, but, but this one time I connected with someone and 
not to get spiritual because I do like to ground myself in science, but I also have this weird side from my family that, that that's like, you can feel energy, you know? And something felt different. And for whatever reason, I decided to not use my fake name. Uh, and so we got to talking, we hit it off really well. Um, and we just had a lot in common. And I made a joke about, you know, asking her out and then she took it seriously. And then everything kind of spiraled out of control for there. And two and a half years later, here we are. So it, it happened organically, like we'd met on the street is, is, is kind of my point there. And I think that's why, I don't know, it's been so effective. We stayed together so long. So I guess my only question in regards to that is, how often do you do this trick? Is it every time where you say, you know, this is a spiritual experience, shouldn't be using my fake name, and eventually it'll work? It's never happened before, though. <laughs> this is the only I've time you tried it? Name. The one time I decided to, to say that, you know, hey, I'm Jacob. It was it was someone that I really vibed well with. That's an act of God right there. And I mean, clearly it's We're worked We're not going to get into religious talk here. No, but <laughs> it's a miracle, that's for sure. So yeah, it is. Given that it's been like an online relationship for the past two and a half years... How have you guys kind of navigated that and, you know, kind of corrected it so it does kind of work for your love languages? Well, just because um, there's distance doesn't mean there's not emotional distance. You know, you can still be close together without being close together. Um, and quality time, which is apparently 30% there for me, um, doesn't necessarily mean quality time physically together. Um, we do tend to stay up late, even if it's just like on text talking. Um, we used to play Splatoon all the time, you know, uh, being together like you would normally. Uh, and it, so, so the nonverbal communication issue, of course, at the very beginning, I was, I was having a tough time, you know, conveying myself um, and not to out anything but but there was a point where where she was upset that i wasn't being as affectionate but i thought i was but it turns out that that people just aren't in my head you can't really tell what i'm thinking through text it's so um it's so uh, in indescriptive of what the person's actually saying because you don't have those subtle social cues that i apparently use a lot more <laughs> than other people um in my physicality so is this, when when you say that she was upset, was this the type of thing that you were alerted to early on, or was this something that kind of built up and then kind of became a bigger issue? What do you mean by that? I mean, there's addressing the problem at its root. You know, you, you have that, like, let's say that happened for like a week, and then, you know, she brings up the topic to you of, oh, I don't feel like, you know, you're showing that much affection, versus, you know, at the end of like two months saying, yeah, you know, for the past two months, you haven't been showing this affection. Which route was kind of taken in regards to that? It was uh, it was pretty decent into the pretty decently long. It was it was a few months in, I think. But okay. we also did spend the first few months just like hanging out. Okay, so I feel like there might have been a miscommunication there. I mean, I, personally, I'm just the type of person where if there's a problem, I feel like you should cut it at the root. Obviously, there's you know it begs the question of you know what at what point do you address a problem? But at the same time, it's, you know, you, you got to just do it, right? So I feel right. like maybe that could have helped out, especially since it seems like at the end, you guys kind of figured out that it's not 
a personality trait or an issue in regards to that, but instead just, once again, kind of that miscommunication, right? I feel like most problems can be just summed up to that one word, miscommunication. Yeah, and, and a lot of our issues have been miscommunication. Um, and that's why I say I've I've tried to learn uh, how to how to be a better person online in general. And I think it's really helped out in many places. And that's why I always say she makes me a better person. There's so many other reasons why, but one of them for me big is my communication skills. I haven't really had like a need to develop them because people often accommodate for me. Um, but in a format where that accommodation can't be made because it's just not being conveyed at all to the other party. What do you do? Right. There's not really much to do. It's, it's something that needs to be left out on the surface. I mean, nowadays we're looking at a reality where, you know, a lot of people prefer to text versus call. And if I send you, you know, let's say you invite me out to a concert and I just say, maybe period. Then a lot of people might get anxiety and think, did he put the period because he's mad at me? And, you know, if I didn't respond for two hours a day or whatever, there might also be anxiety in that regard. So online, we're looking at a communication format where everything has to be very blatant. So I, I do yeah. completely understand what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. And on that regard, I have a friend who I'm not going to call out, but I'm going to tell the listen to podcast later and uh, he'll feel shame about it, but not actually. Who, who uses periods all, periods all the time in his text. And for the first little bit of knowing him, I thought he was constantly mad at me, but he was actually just being grammatically correct and typing sentences how they should be. Um, <laughs> but he was always going like, how are you, period? I'm like, oh, I am so offended. Offended? No. Is that really the term we're using here? <laughs> oh, I'm so terrified. Are, are you telling me that grammatical correctness is offensive nowadays? not to everyone but i do take personal offense when people use exclamation points okay but (laughs) yeah i i I don't even have anything to say about that i I, i'm personally a huge lover of exclamation points but uh, i can see why you wouldn't be (laughs) we at least agree that the semicolon is weird I can tell you that I, in my entire academic career, I have not used a semicolon just out of fear that I will misuse it. <laughs> I could not have made it through my academic career without the semicolon, but that is because it is integral to C++. Yeah, so no real avoiding that then. Yeah. Now, I guess instead of touching on what we were going to touch on earlier in regards to who do you think is perfect for uh, an online relationship? Because honestly, I don't feel like that's probably the best way of addressing this. But right. what would your advice be to someone who is looking to navigate through an online relationship? And do you think that you can almost get to a point where an online relationship is as satisfying as an in-person or at least close? That second half of the question is very good. As for advice, I have to say communicate and never (laughs) ever ever assume um because it's those assumptions that they understand what you're talking about that they understand how you're feeling is what makes these road bumps appear it's a miscommunication comes about with assumption because you know what they say about assumption it makes an ass out of you and me there you go i'll I'll say it so you don't have to feel bad keep keep your uh professional 
persona in check. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. Uh, what was the second question? Second question was just basically, um, do you think that you could get to a point where an online relationship is as satisfying or at least close to as satisfying as an in-person relationship? So that's a good question. And I just don't think that anything can substitute, at least for me, that physical connection. Um, of actually just being there and getting, I don't know, a hand to hold, you know, and it's, it's come, it can come close. There's sometimes, you know, you're like laying on the couch at 3am, tears streaming down your face, uh, bawling your eyes out because you're just uh, so loved, you know, um, and you, you don't even have to be with them, but, um, I'm not sure where I'm going with this, but but they're they're very different experiences, I think, and it's hard to compare. And I think that's one of the issues with people not understanding is that it's not the same, and there's a lot of things that have to be uh, adapted to to navigate the environment. So it's not like a binary thing; it's almost like a scale, I suppose, is what you're saying. Or I'm, I guess I'm, uh, what you're saying is it's not scale, but it's one or the other. They're not mutually exclusive. I think I think there's elements that are shared between them, obviously. Yeah. Um, but I, I really think they're different experiences. Uh, and just, you know, being in a regular relationship doesn't necessarily prepare you for what's there in an online relationship and vice versa. Yeah, I would say it takes... Uh, kind of different skill sets, different, I guess, jargon to know, stuff like that. So I think you do have a good point there. And I think, honestly, you summed it up pretty well with just, you know, they're different experiences. You can't, you know, you, you can't look at it as, you know, your experiences will translate well into the other format. You've got to take them for what they are themselves. Uh, something you did touch on earlier, which I was actually really interested in, was you said that throughout the relationship, you learn to improve your online presence. And communication skills online. Because I, I had to, to, to truly convey what I was saying without that miscommunicative element. And, and online communication has been a big part of my degree. Um, it was a big part of my job over the summer because, you know, work from home. Uh, and I don't think without without the experience of of you know having to properly convey myself, I would have been as successful in those endeavors. Um, I think I can get things to the point better in text now. <laughs> <laughs> so would you almost say then that everyone needs to kind of learn how to manage their online presence? Because the way I'm seeing it right now is. It almost might be like a course-related skill or almost like kind of an online maturity type thing because we discussed previously that, you know, the idea of having a period there would almost make it seem like one is angry at another. So is this something that we need to teach people? Is this something that is on the individual's communication skills or the individual receiving, you know, that text or email themselves? Because it really begs the question, is this something that we need everyone to adapt to? Or do people need to realize that, you know, people are busy and, you know, 
this period being grammatically correct doesn't mean that they don't want to talk to you anymore. That Which is one is it? Great question. And the thing is, it's it's a whole field of study. Um, having having uh, a linguist for a sister means that I get to listen into a lot of stuff like this. Um, there's like uh, different dialects of text uh, based on age range, based on um, location and language and everything like that. Uh, so I don't know if it's actually feasible to create a curriculum to teach people how to behave online. But I do think it's a social skill that needs more focus on developing than it currently has. Now, I don't know how schools work anymore because I haven't <laughs> been to elementary school in, uh, what, eight years now? <laughs> elementary um, school in eight years? Well, well, I haven't, I've, I haven't, I've been to a elementary school <laughs> within eight years, but I haven't gone to elementary school class. That would, that would <laughs> mean you graduate elementary school, which is, I think, grade five is the last in elementary school. So that would make you, what, 12? Whoa, whoa, whoa. You, you I, get I, held I did back not go to middle years? school. Pardon? My elementary, one, my elementary was K to eight. Yeah, well, ditto, but I mean, technically elementary school is uh, K to five, I believe. Middle school is six to eight, but they typically do try and combine those schools. So, so my point of bringing that up, though, is is they, they mask it as teaching you knowledge when school in is, is elementary school is really about learning social skills and how to behave in a group. Um, and learning social cues from one another and developing as a group to exist in the real world. Um, and if we could have that same kind of developmental period for online language, I think it would greatly benefit. And then we wouldn't have people who who are, are you know, using periods in their text when they don't mean to be aggressive because that's just not something that's intuitive. But it's intuitive if you know that that's what it is. So hold on. You think that we need to conform to these kind of anxieties instead of educating people on the realities of it it almost well, sounds like not, you're bowing down to this that's not an anxiety that's an issue that's that's this that is a widespread thing that, that a period is used when you're angry at someone and that is part of the di the dialect of using text language um but, that's that's just a fact of our generation's english I, I would disagree. I, I don't think a period inherently represents anger. I just think it comes down to, in our social norm, it's it's like an acronym, like LOL. Like LOL does not have, you know, a meaning just on the basis. But you know, in language, you know, it, with the you know jargon and everything that we use, it means laugh out loud. So we've assigned that meaning to it, not through any like formal language, but just you know kind of i guess street language i suppose it's probably the best way of saying it so are, are we really going to sit there and you know instead of taking like a mechanical aspect like you know the study of language with the period we're going to conform to kind of the street version and use that as kind of the social norm rather than yes. educating people really the social norm is what should be used that is that is how the world works um it's not slang. It's not misuse. It's it's the population. Uh, things are driven by the majority, and in this case, the majority does things like end sentences with LOL to mean I'm not hostile in this statement. Statement, sorry. Um, instead of you know actually saying that, I do that. And you can scroll up through our DMs. Obviously, the viewers can't. Um, you can scroll up <laughs> through our DMs and see, you know, my mom came downstairs and stepped on something, LOL. I didn't mean that, like, I'm laughing at my mom. I'm saying, like, 
this is this is something that I'm not worried about. This is something that I wanted to share with you because it's fun. It's not a marker that I'm actually laughing. Um, it means I have no hostility in this comment. You uh, also, my mom's fine. She, she stepped on the corner of the rug. <laughs> oh, thank God. But no, I mean, I, I think you have a point there. And we're certainly driven by the social norms at the time. But I feel like it's almost something we can change. Like, you know, if the social norm in your town is it's okay to litter, it doesn't mean we should just conform to that. I feel like this is something that needs changing. Because but it's just in... You're, you're comparing apples to oranges. Littering is something that is detrimental to the environment and our generation. Saying LOL at the end of a text message to imply that it's not hostile doesn't hurt anyone. It just is about conforming to the norms and allowing people to communicate more easily. It conforms to the norms, but it also doesn't take out all the other factors. Because if we're going to conform to those norms, let's say, okay, fine. You know, if we want to use a period as an indicator of hostility, if we want to use LOL as an indicator of, you know, either laughter or not being hostile, then how would you approach the issue of not responding to that text message in, you know, 20 minutes, four hours a day? Because most people nowadays, if I send you a text and I don't get a response in like a day or something, yet I see that your active status shows that you're online, I'll think, you know, oh, why isn't he talking to me? You know, is did I do something wrong? Did that joke not land and now he's mad at me? Like, what's going on? So that's not something you can account for unless everyone is going to be forced into this new norm of responding to a text the second they get it, which is just completely unfeasible, <laughs> right? So how would you account for that? <laughs> well, that's that's up to them to explain it later. And if they don't explain it, then obviously something happened that made them not able to explain it to you but <laughs> um, but if i ignore your text for an hour and then you say you call me say hey pratt why are you responding to my text i'll be like well because i forgot about it or because i'm mad at you you know um i'm gonna tell you unless i don't want to tell you but <laughs> that's a whole other topic you know lying um <laughs> It's, it's so social norms and social norms in language and communication are something that are unavoidable is the bottom line here. Um, and I think or, or, they, they exist in regular speech um, and they, they come in the form of cadences in the voice. You know, uh, there's a famous example of Penn yelling, I love you, dog. It, it, maybe it's the context in which words are spoken that give them the power. Maybe it's the context in which words are written that give them that give them the power that they have. We need to learn what that that context means, because shouting isn't inherently bad. It's just socially accepted to be bad. And without the knowledge of that, someone could come up to with you shouting. Or someone could come up to you shouting angrily at work but you didn't know because you were never shouted at. Um, and you could have no clue what's going on. You could think that they're celebrating your achievement. You know? Um, and that's what I mean by education. is It's not necessarily teaching people what is right and what is wrong, but giving them an environment to grow and develop and understand these norms by communicating with one another on a more regular basis at a younger age. We totally agree on that point. I think it's essential to put them into this, you know, environment where they can, you know, grow and mature in the digital environment because we're getting to a point where everything is turning digital. I just think our disagreement here comes in 
what the formalization should be, what should be taught, and really what it comes down to. Because you're you're correct. I mean, shouting tonal differences and everything, that's how we express ourselves and that's how we respond to certain comments. And you don't have that in you know online texting. So yeah, you do kind of need that mechanical aspect of like an LOL or a period I was supposed to communicate. I could agree on that. But I also feel like there's no there's no real need to do that. I mean, if we want to go for what the original mechanical purpose was, you can look at emojis to show that you're happy, angry, whatever. But even that's been misconstrued. You can emojis send a... Cringe. Pardon? <laughs> emojis are cringe. <laughs> yeah, I know. But the whole point is that was meant to be kind of that bridge between, you know, tone in the real world to tone in this text world. So I, I just, I don't agree with formalizing language based off of the social norm. I feel like we should formalize it mechanically. And I, I think we're looking at something where it's on the person themselves, like the uh, respondee, I suppose, rather than the responder. I think, you know what, if I feel anxiety by you texting a period, that's something I need to deal with. I don't think you being grammatically correct needs to change. I think obviously there's subtle things where it's you know if you're actually this is hard because i mean even if you're in all caps i could just show you're excited right oh but it's the it's the context in which words are written that give them their power yeah it's it's, it's commonly accepted that you don't use a period at the end of a text um i don't know why probably because of of old text messages requiring a character limit and you paid by the character. So if you didn't put a period, you paid five cents less. <laughs> 10 cents. Yep. But you know, it's the, it's, it's, it's now grown into a, a, I don't, I don't know what the word social norm, you know, um, communicative norm that that's what you do. And if you do it differently, you're not doing what the rest of the population is doing or the less, the rest of the English speaking, young teenage population because <laughs> of course it's it's uh it's a dialect as i've brought up before not everyone texts the same way um and it's about demographic statistically yeah no i'll give you that and honestly i can't say i have much of a rebuttal at this point i i don't know what the answer is but as a dirty says <laughs> someone who does text with periods at the end uh i'm not gonna change not one bit but i will say i feel like right now we're at a point where using that lol using that period as indicators of emotion are kind of a band-aid more than anything and i feel like we need a more formal approach and a more established approach to you know kind of fix this issue so that's my stance on it you're not changing me, uh, you know, using periods or whatever, but you, you have opened me up and I guess, you know, you do have a point in regards to, you know, it being a social norm and that's the reason why we do it. So when yeah. you standardize and you conform, you get rebellion. I'm that, I'm that rebellion. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> one of these days I'll start using semicolons as periods and start the new oh rebellion. My. Please don't. <laughs> <laughs> That's one hell freeze. I'm gonna do that. That's one hell freezes <laughs> over, my friend. But, but yeah, you, you said you, you use periods in text. I, 
Do you actually? I, I do. I know we don't text much, but that could be why. I always picture you as really angry when I get text. I'm not angry. I just, I, I think, uh, you know, the formality of it, right? Yeah. Like, I'm, I, 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 I tend to use LOL a lot just as, as you said, like an indicator. But overall, I, I still like, you know, being grammatically correct. So that's just who I am. You can't change that. You, you can't discriminate against me. That'd just be unfair. But yeah, no, mm-hmm. um, continuing kind of along with this uh, online, <laughs> moving online discussion, uh, we're going to kind of touch on a bit of collecting, and then we're going to move on to what this newfangled thing is called NFTs. So NFT. do, do you just want to kind of give a basis on what you collect, just uh, kind of as an intro? So, so I am a sucker for collective sets. You know, there's people who collect pretty rocks. There's people who collect coins. But my big thing, I just dropped something plastic if you heard a tinkling noise. Um, I collect things that can be completed. You know, I like Pokemon cards because they're in sets. I have a, a shelf with UB Funkies, if anyone remembers that right there. Um, I collected Skylanders. I collected, I, I, I have recently come across at Toys R Us these one dollar capsules of two little squishy things and they're adorable and they're cute but i'm buying more because there's a little list of how many you can get uh so that's what i i collect i collect to complete (laughs) okay i'd say i'm not exactly the same way i feel like i collect what i like so i end up collecting for me my history is i used to collect old video games So it started with the original Nintendo, uh, went to the local thrift store, a place called uh, Dougie's Place, actually. Uh, Weird weird guy, to say the least, but I went in there, and I got so enamored by this little rectangular thing. It just, it looked like a toaster, and supposedly that was the original Nintendo. So I kind of went home, excited as hell, told my dad about it. And he was like, yeah, you know, this is pretty much the basis for most of video games. So I sat there, I went back, took my fucking $75 in hand, and bought an old NES, a couple controllers, and a copy of Super Mario Bros. slash Duck Hunt. Now, you know, unknown to my, you know, feeble mind at the time, my young mind, it was a ripoff. I totally could have gotten that for cheaper anywhere else. But I was happy with it. I played it for a while. I got fucking bullshit golf as a game for five bucks. Got some of the classics like Legend of Zelda and Metroid and everything. And, you know, I kind of thought I'd collect it all. And then I got to a point where I just realized, no, I'm not really into that. I just kind of want to collect what I like. So I pretty much kind of stagnated to my collection. Just kind of did it piece by piece and ended up, I think I probably still have around like 70, 80 games here. And kind of got into gaming watches as well, little uh, handheld, almost calculator-looking things. Basically, have a sole game on it, and was made in the '80s. And that's kind of more so my past. The other thing I did collect, uh, weirdly enough, actually probably the first collectible I ever collected was Calvin and Hobbes books. Uh, just kind of a boy and his tiger, and that'll be something I never sell off. That is something that. I would say I'm more passionate about that than even the video game collection because that was the first thing I ever collected. It would be literally this type of thing where I had all the comics, but there was like, I don't know, like a book that had the collection of two different books combined. 
and the author Bill Watterson put an extra comic right at the front. So I would have to go and spend that $30 just to get that one extra comic that honestly I probably could have printed out online. So I ended up collecting all the books, uh, hard days with just having to go through Scholastic and having to get all those bundles and everything, but in the end, that's going to be the thing I end up keeping, so uh, very happy about that. And now we're kind of seeing a transition uh, with kind of the Bitcoin and cryptocurrency craze where we're starting to see collectibles move online in the form of non-fungible token, which for those unfamiliar, do you kind of want to describe what uh, fungible fungible means, uh, Pratt? Yeah, so I I saw a great description of it, which was um, fungible pretty much means that it cannot be uh, replaced by, sorry, fungible means it can be replaced by by something that is itself almost the same. Uh, A good example would be a $20 bill. A $20 bill is fungible because I could go uh, across the street to my neighbor and say, hey, do you have a $20 bill? I will trade you for my $20 bill. We exchange our $20 bills, and there has been no exchange of true value there. Um, I still have $20, you know, right there. Um, whereas whereas something that's non-fungible uh, is, in this comparison comparison I saw, was, was dogs. Uh, I have a dog. My neighbor has a dog. <laughs> if I bring my dog over to my neighbor's house and I say, hey, do you want to trade dog? My experience with with my new dog is going to be vastly different than what I had with my dog before because my dog was was raised by me not by my neighbor my dog is a golden retriever not uh, whatever that small thing they have is um, my dog is uh, really old their, their dog is young you know there's all these different qualities that they have that are are, are not equivalent to each other um, so something is non-fungible when it's unique yeah. And and going along with that, a non-fungible token, therefore, is is a token item, something that we've given value to. Um, and, you know, the term generally is associated with these online tokens that is non-fungible. So we're almost seeing a boom of it. And I mean, recently we've we've seen a ridiculous amount of money being spent on these things. Uh, we had, I believe, a digital art piece made by a guy named Beeple, at least I believe that's his screen name, and back in October of last year, he sold it for, I think it was 66000 or something like that, it was, sorry, it was actually a 10 second computer generated video of Donald Trump collapsing in a park, and yeah, it sold for $67,000. But now, after you know the inauguration of Biden, it just sold off again for six point six million. Wow! And the creator, <laughs> like the creator of Nyan Cat, he also ended up creating like a second gift, pretty much Nyan Cat, but with something like something very small, making it unique. And he sold that for six hundred thousand dollars. And really, you're spending that on a JPEG or, you know, just a 10-second video, right? Stuff that we can already see online. So what's the point? I mean, so yeah, sorry, go ahead. Feel free. So, so, so I, I do have an opinion on that topic. I was sort of on that side uh, when you introduced me to the idea of non-fungible tokens. Well, I think I heard about them before, but when you brought them up as a topic for the podcast, um, 
I was like, man, that's stupid. Why would you pay six million dollars for video? Well, okay, maybe maybe for something <laughs> else I'd pay that. Um, <laughs> um, why would you pay for something that you can just see, right? Uh, but then, you know, I got thinking about it. I, I did some research. I also got converted uh, completely unrelated and, and, and want to make a token. But um, I did I did more research and I, I discovered that it's it's really, really comparable to buying physical art in the means that I could go. Well, I couldn't go, but I could go buy the Mona Lisa for a lot of money and get the same experience as seeing a, re a recreation. So what's the point of owning the original? I, th you there, know what? I think isn't. that's no, it's a, it's a good metaphor. That's for sure. And I mean, it's a direct metaphor. R really? It's a direct parallel. Sorry. Um, yeah, yeah. I just think the difference is, you know, being able to hold it in your hand versus just seeing it on the screen. But I mean, all in all, the value comes from the uniqueness of it. And that's that's solely what the value is based upon. It's not like, you know, each second of that Donald Trump video was just so exciting that it was worth what, like a million dollars a second? It just came down to that unique almost like ownership code or something because it's, you know, uh, encoded online. You are the sole person that has the rights to it or not even the rights. You're the sole person that has it. So it's the exclusivity that drives up the value, at least in my opinion. Yeah, and what I really like about the idea of, of a non-fungible token is that, that, that blockchain element that you're not buying the rights to it, you're buying it. And, and we've, we've invented a way to sell digital media um, because, because the issue there is ownership, right? You buy the rights to something, but you can't buy the actual thing. But, but, but because it's, it's blockchain... No, that sounds like a buzzword, but don't worry. I think I know what I'm talking about. Um, Bitcoin. It's it's not necessarily an ownership that exists in the real world. This is a digital ownership of the digital item that is is ledgered in everyone else's registers. The whole point is that that the transaction is broadcast to the world that it happened, and now that's a fact. Instead of of, you know, me me completing a, a real world transaction for a digital currency or er, item. And yeah, I mean, that's part of the drive. Now, the question is, is this something that's going to evolve over time? Or are we just kind of looking at a fad right now? Because at least to me, I think it's something that's going to evolve, especially as cryptocurrency evolves as well, because it's honestly appears to be the way of the future. Now we don't have to rely on the government to, you know, sit there and decide, oh, well, we need to print more bills. Oh, you know what? nah, we're just not going to do it type thing, right? It's something that you can control. It puts the power in the people. But in regards to something like this, I don't think it's going to, you know, evolve to where, you know, we're going to get everyone spending $6 million on these types of things. If anything, I feel like, you know, the marketplace will expand and we'll see everyone start to own different non-fungible tokens, but it'll almost be kind of like a unique thing, like just... Like owning a book or really just like we talked about before, just collecting in general. So I'm, I've am i always been of, of, well, not always because crypto hasn't been around always, but <laughs> as of my awareness of it um, and my, my greater knowledge of it, as I, as I learn more about it, I've been of the belief that cryptocurrency really is the future. Um, and it's just a matter of time before we all 
you know, transfer over to having our crypto wallets and scanning a QR code instead of a debit card. Um, because it's much more secure, uh, it's decentralized, no one's in control, and the money belongs to you, right? And everyone knows for a fact that you have 17 bitcoins because there's there's millions of copies of records showing that you bought 17 bitcoins from this one person. Um, and I think that if that is our inevitable future, then I would really like to see an inevitable future where goods are bought as non-fungible tokens and all transactions are completed like that. You know, my house is registered as a non-fungible token and then that, that transfer of ownership is detailed on the blockchain. And therefore, if someone breaks into my house and kicks me out of it, there is legal record, not legal record, but, but, but official record of me being it's impossible for someone to steal my house and say that they own it. I, um, you know what? I didn't even consider that. I think you bring up a good point there. I thought the way you were going about it, you were going to say, you know, I just want all goods to be, you know, transferred online. You know, if I want a book, I want a non-fungible token version of the book, not an actual book itself. But no, you have a good point, and I didn't even consider that option. <laughs> but it, it, it prevents theft of assets, and it also means that you don't have to physically be with your assets at all times to make sure they're not safe, because of course they can be stolen. But stolen with transfer of ownership cannot be achieved, you know? Um, I can't break into and then sell on the black market. I guess I could, but eventually it's going to find its way back to me, because... Because on the blockchain, there was no leaving of my hands. The next time that that thing pops up, it's going to be like, hey, that belongs to Jacob. Why is it coming out of someone else's account? So do you feel like we'll almost reach a point then where we're not all buying rights to certain media, but instead we're fine buying non-fungible token versions of it? Like, do you think the rights aspect, you know, like movies, stuff like that, will be something that continues or something that might almost evolve into different forms of NFTs. So so I think how that's going to go down is movies and things are going to be made into NFTs. But but it's not it's not about that it's like, you know, Kevin Feige is going to make the next Marvel movie into an NFT and then keep it. And now he is the sole owner of Avengers 17 <laughs> Muppets in Space, right? Yeah. Um <laughs> But, but the rights could potentially also be, and correct me if I'm wrong for people in chat, no offense, Graves, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but the rights could potentially be a non-fungible and, 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 and traded on the blockchain and given to Netflix to distribute the movie. There could be 10 tokens that are like, this is the rights to distribute Marvel movies, you know? Okay, but because, what... Is they don't have to be limited to physical goods or services. Things can be digital. Things can be metaphorical and still be given a, a, an existent, a tangible thing, a token. Yeah. It, it, you can think of it like those coupons. If you ever made those for your parents that you made for your parents, <laughs> one free Did hug. You ever do that? One free yeah, hug, like, uh, mow the lawn once. I'll do the laundry coupon, that kind of thing. That's pretty much what a non-fungible token is when you get down to it. Yeah. No, you're, you're essentially right on that. Now, when it comes to, you mentioned, like, the rights to distribute, having, like, 10 tokens or whatever, do you think that would come down to NFTs being a thing for individual rights? Because the way I see it, if you're 
going to make a certain amount of tokens so that everyone has, you know, the right to, you know, see that movie or whatever. I, I'm just, I'm just, I'm, I'm picturing like a dystopic world where, as, I guess, as you said before, you know, Avengers 17 comes out. It's like, oh, hey, we've got, you know, a thousand non-fungible tokens for individual rights access. And then everyone's like trading fucking Avengers 17 on the black market, not the black market, but the but- stock market almost, <laughs> right? And That's so- how it is, though. It's just in a different system right now. I, 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 of course, I'm not talking about viewing rights. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Distribution rights, like for cinemas uh, to play the movie at, for Netflix to put the movie up, or I guess Avengers would be on Disney Plus because they own it anyway. But um, things wouldn't really be much more different. It would just be a different and much, much more secure system of handling the same process. Yeah, no, you've certainly got a point on that. And I think we're looking for a good world in the future. Uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a clear progression of technology. And I think people are forgetting that as humans, we progress and we invent better ways of doing the things that we're already doing. And Bitcoins, not necessarily Bitcoins, but cryptocurrencies and using blockchain technology as a secure method of transfer of ownership of items is a very very strong future and the best part our lady peace is coming out with a single as a nft so we can look out for that in the future <laughs> <laughs> and of course you know more bands in the future it's it's definitely something that everyone's gonna hop on and i, I mean i want to create my own nft i'm sure you want to create your own nft oh yeah well i do, do you have I've, any got, ideas? I've got ideas of brewing um, and and not to say as a game developer, but as a game developer, that's where my mind first went, is the idea of ownership in a fake world is now feasible in a secure way. Because I could make something that's tradable with, with the Ethereum standard. I could make uh, sort of like the Steam Marketplace. That's why I asked you podcast, you knew what it was. You can, you can trade items from from various steam games to your friends and back and forth but imagine that system but 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 globalized and not localized steam i could i could have my 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 diamond minecraft pickaxe and i could sell it to someone else who wants that minecraft pickaxe in their minecraft world for five bucks (laughs) you know and that kind of that kind of transaction can happen with the idea of a non-fungible token in video games i uh, yeah i think the possibilities just are endless there me personally i think it'd be the type of thing where i just want to go into ms paint paint a red line paint a yellow line paint a blue line call it a non-fungible token and fucking make three million off of that god knows that i'll set that up for you hey the the royal ontario museum already has a painting just like that that sold for like two million or something literally a preschooler could have made that Oh, art. How thou art subjective. Subjective and the potential to make one rich. I should really try it out sometime. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> I'll strike gold. I wonder I wonder what your chances are of, you know, selling off an art piece for a shitload of money versus winning the lottery. I feel like selling off that art Ooh. piece would actually be more feasible, no? I don't think so. It's an extremely saturated market. Um, but that is a great mathematical question i kind of want to send that into my favorite (laughs) math tubers see if they can work out an actual number i mean i think that would take a lot of market research just in regards to like you know how many paintings get sold a year versus how many paintings are made 
how much does the uh, author's reputation come into it? Uh, I guess subjectivity of the person buying it type thing. There's a lot of factors. It doesn't take skill to win the lottery. That's the whole point of a lottery. No, but the point is the only factor you have to account for, at least in that, is just buying the lottery ticket. You don't. Yeah. There's there's no subjective aspect of the lottery. It's all objective, <laughs> unless I guess what you're the guy picking out the numbers. But but because it's subjective with art, that means you can get better, and you can you can target. You can't do that with the lottery. You can't you can't see. I guess you could statistically see which numbers come up most often because their picking method are flawed. But oh. you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's. <laughs> It's crazy, to say the least. Striking it rich isn't something to strive for, though. Really? I mean, it. You don't feel so that way. I'm not. I'm not saying. I'm not saying being rich isn't something to strive for, but but striking it rich is something that happens naturally and to, the the most random people. Oh, of course. I. I it's it, it's not something you can strive for. It's something that happens to you. Whereas whereas earning that value in your life, is what you can strive for and hope that you strike it rich along the way. I'm not looking to strike it rich just in regards to I want a new Lamborghini, I want that house in the Bahamas or anything. The only thing is, is I just want, you know, there's there's restrictions in society, right? Like it's all tied to that money-based aspect. Yeah. You're, you're essentially buying your, if you strike it rich and have that money to sustain yourself, you're eventually buying your freedom. You can afford those medical bills. You can afford those glasses. You can afford to have a roof over your head and, you know, mac and cheese for dinner <laughs> probably a little something more substantial but you get the it's point right like I, I think you know the gluttonous aspect of it of you know well i need an elevator for my house that's ridiculous but Ooh, money i do need an elevator for my they, house. they that say that cool. money doesn't buy happiness but money does really buy your freedom but it could buy me a boat <laughs> as evident by your profile picture <laughs> <laughs> i i really like boats um but well that wasn't the one i was trying to make i i mean you know striking it rich is like winning the lottery it's not it's not something you can just do because if you could just do it so many more people would it's much more sustainable to to slow and steady wins the race doesn't slow and steady make you run out of food and die no, slow and steady wins the race. Did you not read the tortoise in the hand? Okay, well, you know what? In that case, I'm not going to get a job. I'm just going to work on this podcast. And then, you know what? Eventually, we'll, we'll strike it rich. Or rather, no, I guess, just get that progression you will right. earn your richness <laughs> if you put the time and effort in. But you could strike it rich with the podcast if yeah. someone really, really likes it. I would say there's too much of a saturation in the podcast environment. At least for something like this podcast, you're looking at... Just a variety of topics every week and just kind of that conversational slash maybe even like an audio diary type format. And with something like this, it's way too saturated. I feel like you either need your niche subject or you need to already have a backing to be successful. And yet there's still a chance that you are the, the deviant of the format, that you have struck it rich. That's what I'm trying to say is it's not something that you can you can choose to do. That's fair. I guess, you know, you just got to put in that time and effort and try and earn it then, right? Which is, you know, exactly your point. So <laughs> I, I will give you that one and give yourself a check mark for that. Okay, I will. Uh... Now, I think probably the last topic we should touch on is, as I mentioned at the beginning, 
Uh, Mr. Jacob Prattley here is a game developer. He's yes, I am. what two months away from getting out of school. Yeah, and after that, who knows what's going to happen, right? Yeah, but previously you did <laughs> do an internship at Ubisoft, right? I did. Uh, I so so Ubisoft or Ubisoft. It's it's pronounced differently depending on where you are and who you ask. Um, although although the French pronunciation is what I've heard, it could be the correct one because it is a, originally a French company. Um, I did a whole research on their history for a, a project for school. Uh, Toronto's branch of Ubisoft, not to dox myself, uh, <laughs> does a, a competition every year where they, they try and find talent in the industry. Uh, and I happen to win and the winner gets an internship. So for the summer, I achieved the dream and I worked at a triple A studio. And it was awesome. <laughs> oh, dude, I, I imagine. I feel like for a lot of people in chat, for a lot of people on Twitch, it's either, you know, I want to be a streamer or I want to be a game designer slash developer. So you've this, definitely this, achieved what a lot of people want. This is my example of striking it rich because I could I could get a job at a game development company, but I won a contest. Um, that's striking it rich. I got my dream job there is because no, uh, no. I entered and they liked me, you know? It, to, to everyone in chat, to all the audio listeners on Spotify, whatever, you know what? He, he's lying. He did not strike it rich. The amount of effort that Mr. Jacob Pratley here puts in to, you know, school, his hobbies, careers, etc., it was in the making. Maybe the opportunity... You, you could almost look at it as the opportunity to get your dream job so early in this, you know, career, like your career path was striking it rich, but you achieving that job period was not striking it rich. I feel like the timeline was just accelerated. You, you don't give yourself enough credit. I have been told that I don't do that by <laughs> other people too. Well, you know what? Not Everyone to be has modest. a different perspective. <laughs> <laughs> So, so what do you want to bring this up for specifically? Well, we were talking before the podcast, and yeah. you were telling me that you felt that game development was easy and that it was almost an industry secret that isn't communicated. That just struck me as, you know, just kind of BS right off of the bat, but I feel like you got to have an explanation for that, especially since you're so, on air right now. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, so, so a long, long, long time ago, game development was not easy. If I, if I was born in, in, when were video games invented? Jeez, I should know this. Probably 1970. You know, like, I was born in, in 1950, I think. And I was old enough to get a job when the NES was in development and, <laughs> and had a company making the NES. I don't, when did the NES come out? 1980s. You're looking... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so I'd I'd be thirty then, fifty, sixty, seventy. Yeah, yeah. no, that's actually that's fair. around the age. I don't think I'd be able to do it if if I were to go back in time, blend in with society. I don't think I could because there's just so much more. There's so many more limitations, and there's a lot more that you had to know to get it running. Period. Not even not even good. Um, and nowadays things have changed so drastically because of the the hard work that gets put in. You know, at at big companies like uh, Unity, 
uh, Epic Games with the Unreal Engine to make these accessible development tools. Um, and it's gotten to the point that you don't even need to know how to code to make a game. There's there's things like Bolt. It's a it's a visual scripting language uh, that's for Unity, which is a game engine that I highly recommend. Um, if anyone in chat wants to make a game or anyone listening on whatever platform you're listening on, look at Unity. You can personally find me and ask me for help if you need it because I'm very willing to give it. Just get into it because it doesn't take much. I, I look back at the kind of stuff I've made throughout my journey of, of learning what game development is. And if I did it now, I would do it way differently. But it worked. And that's the good part. Back in, I think, second year, I made a game called Shrek Ball, where you play as the disembodied head of Shrek. You roll around a map and you hop through rings. My coding was abysmal. It looked like garbage, but it played. And it was fun. And that's what matters. Game development is really, it's easy. It's not easy to make it good, but it's easy to make it. And that's that's the point I wanted to get across. No, that's a very good point, and I feel like you might have broken down a few stereotypes that people have about it. Because you're right, it might be kind of more of a drag-and-drop type thing now. Not a drag-and-drop, but it's certainly become a whole lot more accessible. I mean, I'm talking as a guy who, you know, was a huge Scratch developer back in the day. <laughs> Just kidding. Scratch is, a, Scratch is an intro platform for uh, game development or even uh, just kind of creation in general. So, But yeah, no, with uh, Unity, uh, with stuff like Blender and everything, we're looking at a world where it's more accessible and people are you know, much more adept, I suppose, to be able to achieve their dream. And you've clearly done that already. So uh, do you want to kind of touch on a couple of your projects maybe so far? Well, I have I have so many, but I have a few released projects, and I think this is your segue to get me to to talk about what I have on my online presence. You're talking um, about Shrek Ball, <laughs> <laughs> right? So I, I've made I've made plenty of games. I've made plenty of half baked prototypes, um, but what I really love is releasing them. Um, and I've got I've got a, a game I made for a game jam with a few of my friends called brains which is it was a lot of fun to make it's not that much fun to play but it was designed to be frustrating where you play as a zombie you walk around the map and and it was an opportunity for me to play with that game um so i made it so that instead of controlling your player you're controlling the two arms of the zombie in front of you and you can lift them up and down and left and right it was sort of like octodad but 2d in first person um and you could grab people's heads and rip them off and grab their brain and eat it by and it was fun to make. We had fun doing it. And I don't know where I'm going with that, but it's one of the projects I made. You know, um, I worked on Shrek Ball. I've 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 made uh, first-person controllers for for trying to make something that feels like a AAA game. You know, is inspired by um, by 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 seeing all the games at Ubisoft. Because I don't know if you know, but Ubisoft employees get every single game that they've ever released for free. Wow. So I've been playing through all the Far Cries in backwards order because I worked on Far Cry 6. <laughs> um, I can't tell you what I worked on, but but it's it's so inspiring to see this this stuff. Um, so so <laughs> I'm going on such a tangent. No, that's okay. Feel free. Uh, a lot of a lot of my projects come out of game jams, and that's that's a good starting point. If you don't know where to start, 
and you want to start and you're listening to this podcast for some reason, I, <laughs> I implore you, get some friends together, get some strangers together, make a make a group that, that you know can do something or not, because I've learned on the spot as well, and do a game jam. Go to itch.io, click the game jam tab, and you're going to find hundreds and just sign up for one. You're going to have 48 hours and you're going to, at the end, have something might not be a game it might not even run but you made something and that's important and would you would you say you have a favorite project by chance Ooh. oh th- this is a hard question this is something a... I, i'm just dropping on him he was not prepared for this <laughs> oh no <laughs> um so so i i it's hard to pick and i'm gonna cheat the rules and say that i have two one is Shrek Ball, because Shrek Ball showed me the potential of of games in general. Up to the point that I made Shrek Ball, it was, it was like a, a field. It was cool. But I made it. My friends played it. My friends liked it. They showed their friends. Their friends liked it. My roommate and I played it on stream. And then he sent it off to another one of his streamer friends, and they played it on stream. And it was... It was earth shattering and mind blowing to see someone that I didn't even know play a game I made and and laugh at it because it was bad and have fun <laughs> while playing it and just spend two minutes of his life doing something that he didn't have to. So that's that's my actual favorite project. My my second favorite would have to be Meteor Rush, which is a game that I made for school because it sort of showed me the potential of working with people. Um, it was it was my first project that I actually was in charge of, and there was more people than me. Um, what we wanted to do, because we only had a semester left, because you know how drama goes, uh, we had to start from scratch with a brand new team and a brand new game, so we had to do something simple. So I can't remember who suggested it, but we ended up on Asteroids, but in VR. So instead of looking from top down, you're looking from the cockpit of a space uh, shuttle thing and you're driving it around with physics based steering mechanisms and now that i say that that's probably not as easy as it should have been no um (laughs) but um but but i i put the i put the timeline together i made sure that we we knew what we could cut i made sure that we hit all our deadlines um and i think it was the most successful project i've ever done it fell apart at the end because covid kind of ruined everything but um <laughs> but 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 it it allowed me to organize a group and it really showed me um that I do have a love for project management and and keeping a team of of people working together so that's it's my favorite project for my future and Shrekball's my favorite project period um because I think Meteor Rush really taught me uh what I want to do which is to lead a game development firm at some point in the end i will say you technically did not answer the question by having two examples but i think you explained yourself well enough that we will accept your answer especially <laughs> since you said shark ball is your favorite right so yeah but yeah shark no. ball is my favorite on paper yeah and then on execution it's meteor rush right no it's shark ball as well <laughs> we'll call it the shark ball episode then
<laughs> okay. And I think that probably brings us to the end of this podcast. So thank you very much for coming on. Uh, <laughs> we had a lot of interesting conversations. I didn't expect to get so far into goddamn punctuation in text <laughs> messages. <laughs> I, I still don't know how yeah. we add that category. But uh, overall, fun time. Uh, I feel like you definitely influenced a few of my opinions and you shared some good stories. So is there anything you'd kind of like to plug before you go? Uh, yes, I would like to plug my friend Tommy Renaud. Um, <laughs> I miss you very much, Tommy. If you're listening to this, uh, answer my message on Facebook. Uh, <laughs> I would also seriously like to uh, plug my itch.io page. Um, while I do work as a triple a game developer well i did um and i'm probably going to i really really enjoyed my experience and i'd like to go back to other places like that i'm going to be doing my own stuff in the meantime uh and that's where i'll be putting all my projects so if you're interested in the work i do please visit uh spratly spelled s-p-r-a-t-l-e-y dot itch uh i-t-c-h dot i-o and you'll see all the projects I make, which is it's a very barren website right now. But I hopefully be putting Shrekball there for old time's sake. <laughs> hopefully. We'll need to see a remake or I suppose a reimagined version down the road. I Okay, okay. That's a whole other can of worms. I'm already working. Well, good to hear. We've got a sense of what you're working on in the future. So uh, once again, thank you for joining me. And that is the end of the third episode of the Gravescast. You can find us on twitch.tv slash nfgraves for the live recording every other Friday at 8 p.m. EST. Or if you're more of a listen to it after the show type thing, you can go to Spotify, iTunes, whatever you listen on, or just anchor.fm slash gravescast for the link. Uh, if you'd like to leave a audio message in regards to, you know, just feedback recommendations for topics stuff like that feel free to leave that there there's the option a couple weeks uh, i have a friend coming on who has been working in the field of architecture and is a pretty huge horror buff so we'll definitely be talking about a couple of those things uh, among other topics so feel free to join us then Uh, as for now have a good night guys and we will see you when we see you